This is Priya Gattari and you're listening to Telling Times, a podcast examining the most pressing issues facing America. Today's episode, F is for Forgotten, part two. Last week we talked about why hundreds of young people growing up in disadvantage were struggling to get by. This week we're talking about what we can do about it. You'll hear from people who are running non-profits, from those who saw a gap and set up their own services, and from Jeremiah, the young man from the last podcast, whose story is truly remarkable. But first, I'd say these are human beings that we're talking about. So I don't actually believe that we give up on anyone. We as a society and as a community have a responsibility to help people who, for whatever reason, need help or are vulnerable, right? So, so that's that. And then in terms of you know, 16 to 24-year-olds or 13 to 24-year-olds, if not now, when? This is an optimum time for intervention so that that prevents, yes, longer-term homelessness and incarceration and poverty and all of the things that are much, much more difficult and challenging to deal with. I sort of am of the mindset with young people, if not now, when, and it is our responsibility. It is absolutely our societal and community responsibility. That's Sherilyn Adams, the Executive Director of Larkin Street Youth Services. Larkin Street is a non-profit that's been running in San Francisco for the past 30 years. It works with young people who are at risk, homeless or who have run away, getting them back on their feet, into education, into jobs and on the road to a happier life. When I told other people in the non-profit sector that I was interviewing Sherilyn for this podcast, they all nodded approvingly. She has a reputation among her peers as this incredible force. Years of experience in the non-profit sector under her belt, a real, no-nonsense approach. But also a passion, a visceral passion, to help change the lives of the most disadvantaged kids, the ones that everyone else has given up on. You can hear it in her voice. A quick pause here. The reason I started looking more closely at disadvantaged youth is because I felt that they were getting left behind. You may have seen or heard about the research from James Heckman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, that shows that the optimum time to invest in people is when they're very young. You may have even seen the graph that shows that the rate of return on investment, how much of what you put in, you get out, the rate of return falls as the child gets older, into teenage and then into adulthood. Think about it like building blocks. If you lay a good foundation, kids can build on this when they get to school and beyond. With a shaky foundation, the building is more likely to fall down. I'm definitely for starting young. I wish we could catch all vulnerable children before they grow into vulnerable teenagers. But I also believe that people of all ages can change. Think about what you were like as a teenager and how you are now. If you're anything like me, then you've definitely changed. So if we can change, so can the disadvantaged young people that we've been talking about. And science shows us that this is possible. Teenagers' minds are still malleable. They can be shaped. Connections between parts of their brains haven't been hardwired. The brain prunes in adolescence, tidying up its garden of connections 
to make itself more efficient. So stimulating new connections and reinforcing their use can make sure they are cultivated rather than trimmed. I think this gives us evidence and hope that we can make a difference. So back to Sherilyn. Sherilyn says that the first step in engaging and helping young people is to meet them where they are. A piece of what, what Larkin Street does practically is honour their experiences. Just to say, what you can hear in the background is building work on Larkin Street's new premises. So by having like an outreach program that actually goes into the parks or goes to talk with folks and doesn't expect immediate trust. Instead, you know what, why don't we just, we have socks and stuff, we have tampons, we have things that just say, I get your life, I get where you're at. And then we also have help to get you into college and we have housing and we have medical care and you can take two minutes to get into those services or you know do that come to our drop-in center and stay in our shelter and get tracked for our housing and you can do that in a fairly straight line or that can be a really wiggly line so I think some of how you begin to heal that is that you get real and that they see so part of that's the services on the human side it's having staff who respect and honor who the youth are and who can help to sort of begin to work with them to change their thinking, which will lead to changing their behaviours. Listening to Sherilyn speak, something struck me. In last week's podcast, we talked about this idea that our minds only have a limited amount of processing power. That's what's known as bandwidth. In situations of scarcity like homelessness or poverty, more and more of that bandwidth is taken up with pressing needs, like making ends meet. There's no room to think about anything else. By delivering essentials that meet the immediate need of homeless youth, Larkin Street is taking a cognitive load off their minds, answering questions like, where will I sleep tonight? What will I eat? How will I protect myself? Young people have their minds freed up, their bandwidth freed up, for them to think about other things, for them to think about how to move into the transitional housing programme, or to get back into education or to get onto the job training ladder that leads to a living wage job. But they wouldn't have been able to see this far if they were still carrying all of that cognitive load. Sherilyn had another observation. Having had those experiences, you know, the other truth about human beings and the other truth about the young people that we see, right, is a strong sense of resiliency and sort of ability to sort of navigate through things that most of us would just sort of fall apart with. So what if we could turn that resilience around and focus it on some of these life challenges? When I first moved to San Francisco, I was introduced through a friend of a friend to Heather Docker. She works as a school counsellor with a mostly low-income student population and is finishing up her master's in counselling psychology. In my very British way, I invited her over for tea and cake and a chat. The first thing that I really try to remember is I could be the first adult in their life that is consistently there for them. 
And so I'm setting an example for them where I'm going to be there for them every week, and even sometimes more than that if they're in crisis, that I'm always listening to them. I care about them. They're worth something. I stick to my word. If, I'm going, if I say I'm going to be there for them, I am. And so it's that first contact, I think, that's helpful, but it's even just that different relationship with an adult, I think that sparks something. And then once kind of a, a trust has been built with them, it's, it's a lot of self-esteem building activities. I do a lot of art activities because teens sometimes just don't want to talk. But it's a lot about helping them identify what their strengths are. These kids who have such low self-esteem and haven't had anyone telling them what they're good at, it's really important to start helping them see what they are good at. So not the fact that they're failing out of school, that's not helpful. They've, they're told all the time they're getting bad grades. Um, and that they won't be able to go to college. It's really reshaping and reframing how they're seeing themselves. And this begins to impact their ability to look in the future and start to strive for more. When you talk to Heather about the kids that she works with, she takes you on this journey that's sort of psychology, neuroscience, counseling, teaching, common sense, all rolled into one. The first thing for her is about creating a secure environment where young people can talk about their challenges. Building that sense of trust that she's not going to swoop in and out, like perhaps other adults have done in the past, giving them peace of mind. A lot of disadvantaged young people have grown up without a secure adult figure in their lives. An absent parent, no parents at all, disruptive relationships. What happens to kids when they don't have a secure figure? Well, it turns out this matters most in times of stress, when you really need that person. A stressful situation raises the level of cortisol in our bodies. It's a hormone that can be useful in small doses, but really harmful to our bodies and minds in large doses. A researcher called Clancy Blair, working out of the psychology department at NYU, found that when young children were put in traumatic situations at home, their cortisol level rose only if a parent or caregiver was not there to soothe away the impact. In situations where the caregiver was attentive and responsive, then the impact of a stressful situation on the child pretty much disappeared. In other words, adults were able to act as a buffer against the impact of trauma on a child's stress response system. The same is true for middle school students. What I've seen so far, the kids that are really like able to come some of these hardships have learned at a young age that they can cope with the hardship. And part of this is being able to go to an adult as a child when you're distressed and get that support. Because basically that teaches you how to cope, right? And it teaches you that you're worth something um, versus the kid who has no one to turn to when they're little, when they're scared or they don't know what to do. Um, that creates a lot of anxiety, and that anxiety stays with them, and it profoundly affects their self-esteem and their ability to cope with hardship later on. In experiment after experiment, this sense of trust, a building of secure attachment to a figure, like a parent or caregiver or counsellor, it's been shown to create more confidence in that young person. It's given them a peace of mind that they didn't have before. But it also carries forward into adult life into a willingness to take on new challenges. They're more successful academically, in work. And that's because by taking a load off their cognitive functions, 
It allows the part of their brain that gets suppressed, the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for judgment, for control, for those good decisions. It allows that part to develop. The sense of trust and support matters whether you're working with kids in school or kids on the street. It allows the person helping them to show them that there might be another way, that there are all these potential opportunities if they put their minds to it. I meet Shaman Walton on what is clearly a busy day for him. Actually, it's clear that every day is a busy day. We sit in his office among the books and flyers and folders, the sound of activity all around us. Towards the end of our interview, someone pops their head in to ask him an urgent question. He's unfazed. Shaman is the executive director of Young Community Developers, a non-profit based in the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood of San Francisco. They provide education and employment training opportunities for young people in a pretty disadvantaged part of San Francisco. He's a newly elected member of the school board. He's a father of two. What you should also know about Shaman is that he was once one of these disadvantaged kids. He grew up in a single parent household. He became a teen parent himself. He was expelled from school. He was in and out of juvenile hall. He was at one point living in temporary housing. And it's this experience that drives the way he thinks about helping young people today. Well, one thing I, I think that we, we need to get across to our young people is that they're their biggest asset. I mean, the resiliency that they have. You know, our, some of our children are dealing with some of the most extreme social ills that exist. Um, and it's happening to them at a very early age. But the fact that they can live and survive in these communities and, and with all the despair and lack of hope that they may see on a daily basis also lets them know that they can be whatever they want to and become whatever they want to. And so, uh, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, I try to get them, and I always say, you know, never be content with average because it's just as close to the bottom as it is to the top. And so they should always strive to be better than, than better than the C and better than average. And so really providing that self-esteem and that self-confidence that um, they need to overcome any obstacle because they are so resilient and they are used to dealing with so many different things and so once they can turn any ounce of negative energy that they have into something positive they can overcome any situation and they can go and, and do whatever it is that they choose. I guess you can think about your level of resilience as how tough you are, how well we all bounce back from a shock how well we cope when life gets us down. Anything from getting a bad grade at school to getting negative feedback at work, from coping with divorce to dealing with death. And the most interesting thing about resilience is that actually kids growing up in chaotic households, well, they sometimes have a lot more of it than kids growing up in affluence. And that surprised me. But it's precisely because, as Shaman says, they've had to deal with so many traumatic things. One of the most famous research experiments on resilience is known as the marshmallow test. You will have probably come across it. In fact, if you go onto YouTube, you can see videos of children being made to do the marshmallow test by worried parents trying to predict their child's future success. In the original experiment, run by Walter Mischel, then a professor of psychology at Stanford, now at Columbia, a group of four-year-olds were put into a room where a marshmallow was placed on the table in front of them. They were told that if they could wait 15 minutes for the researcher to come back in, 
they would be rewarded with a second marshmallow. If they ate the marshmallow, they wouldn't get a second one. The test became famous because of its predictive power of later success. Michel followed up with the subjects from the test and found that those who were able to resist the marshmallow the longest had higher earnings, were happier, healthier, and so on. The more interesting thing for me was how the children avoided eating the marshmallow. The techniques they used, their resilience. Some children sang songs. Others covered their eyes. One little boy apparently took a nap. They used their resilience techniques to pass the test. So how can our young, disadvantaged youth turn their resilience around from focusing on surviving to succeeding? One way might be in tackling their views about ability. Last week we talked about stereotype threat, that kids succumb to the negative beliefs held about themselves. They're not clever enough because they're African-American. They don't belong in school because they are poor, so they'll never graduate or go to college. Hidden in here is a view about ability. Carol Dweck, a leading professor of psychology at Stanford University, has looked at the way students think about ability. Is it fixed or is it malleable? She has found that you're able to divide people into two groups. Those who have a fixed mindset and think that ability is fixed, and those who have a growth mindset and who believe it's malleable. By the way, the jury is still out on whether ability is fixed or malleable. The experiments she ran were about what people believed to be true. And what she found was remarkable. Dweck took a group of middle school students and paired some with a mentor whose job it was to show the students illustrations of how the brain can grow, like a muscle if exercised. In other words, that with effort and with doggedness, you can become smarter. The other students were paired with a mentor who told them about the harmful effects of drug use on student performance. They were the control group. Dweck twisted the students at the end of the year. She found that the drug use message, the control message, had no discernible effect on the attainment gap between majority and minority students. So here we're thinking about girls, African-Americans, low-income children. But the attainment gap was almost entirely closed for the students who heard the growth mindset message. Just by contemplating growing their brains, students were able to overcome stereotype threat. So it's a bit like turning that negative conversation in their heads into a positive conversation. In her brilliant TED talk, Dweck tells a story of a teacher who rather than giving the students a bad grade when they perform poorly on a test or assignment, that F is for fail, F is for forgotten, the teacher writes, not yet. You haven't got it yet, but you will because it is within you to do it. That's a real change in outlook. So far, we've talked about establishing security, we've talked about shifting mindsets, but we still haven't solved one piece. 
Growing up in disadvantage means young people don't often see the same opportunities as their more affluent peers. Remember Hannah Dorr, the program manager from the San Francisco Education Fund, in the first episode? She said that young people don't see their parents in well-paid jobs, or perhaps working at all. They don't see a life for them outside their existing world. So it becomes difficult to shift that focus onto something else. A degree, a job, a career. They're not going to want to exert self-control if they don't know what they're aiming for. So let's talk about opportunity. Shaman Walton says that for some young people, it's about connecting what they learn in school, abstract concepts like maths, to real-world applications. He takes students on tours of workplaces. He puts them through internship programs, enabling them to see that by learning maths, they can become engineers. And that means being able to build solar panels, just like they did in their internship. That helps them focus in school. It's also about shifting the conversation from, are you going to go to college? To, which college are you going to? Something that happens more naturally, even automatically, in more affluent households. But for others, the ones that have been most failed by society, it's simply about giving them a chance. A chance to get back on their feet, to learn the life skills that they missed out on, to hold down a job that pays well, that offers career progression, that offers a pathway to a better life. Teresa Goines, the former correctional officer you heard from in the first programme, she saw this firsthand. She was successfully rehabilitating young men in her facility, but they were going back out into the world and back out into the same home, the same community, where they'd got into trouble in the first place. And without effective support, the easiest thing was to fall back into old ways. She wanted to break that cycle. Hearing this over and over from the youth, I really, the things I kept hearing from them are that we need jobs because most of them are in a situation of poverty and really struggling um, to make ends meet. But if they have a felony and they can't, you know, and have other issues going on as far as just knowing how to have a resume and how to present yourself and, and all those things, um, if they're not able to make money legally, the pull to make money illegally is, is going to be very strong, especially if that's what they see everybody around them doing. So I was like, okay, we need to have something that's going to provide train, job training, employment, mentorship. And I also wanted kind of the sense of empowerment, you know, where the youth are really not just kind of doing a only a menial job or just something that's not got any ability to sort of move and translate. And so I started thinking about, okay, well, if I did a, a supper club, a restaurant, but also with entertainment, because we have so many talented young people, it would give them an opportunity to have a job, the job training mentorship in a field that they could go anywhere in the world. Every city has restaurants. And then there's the community side of it. It's not just the job and the translatable work skills, but also we're, we run it like a family-run restaurant. So they're not just an employee. They're, they're really my kids. They're our kids. You know, we love them. We, we provide um, life coaches and counseling and mentorship, and we really get to know them and see them. This was her vision for Old School Cafe, going back to the old days where communities rallied around an individual in trouble. We have to care about each other's children, them, but we've got to have more community and people, neighbors caring about 
each other and not staying so private to just just my immediate family but you know taking the time to to take if you can see somebody else is really struggling or doesn't have a lot of support at home you know invite them over for dinner take them to the baseball game sort of that being being another set an adopted family per se old school cafe rehabilitates formerly incarcerated youth and young people coming out of foster care it provides them with job training in the restaurant business as chefs, as managers, servers, entertainers, front of house. It helps young people manage work days. It provides counselling and coaching. I had dinner at Old School a few weeks ago. I wanted to understand for myself what the restaurant gave to young people. It was incredible. The food was delicious, real homely, honest food. The service was outstanding. The music was great fun. A couple of the staff members spoke to me. One of them was 22-year-old Jeremiah, whom you heard in the last episode. He's now the barman at Old School Cafe. And here's the rest of his story. He starts by talking about a conversation with his parole officer after he'd been released from jail. When I got out, I was still like in my same mode, like drug dealing and stuff. That's what I was mostly doing. And I was coming to the office, like, no nice stuff on, and she was wondering where the hell I got it from. And so she was like, if you don't go down there to old school, then you're going to get locked back up. So I was like, ah, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go down to old school. <laughs> then I looked it up on uh, online, and it, it kind of interested me because I was just thinking about, like, a career. And I was like, no, I kind of, you know, I could deal with people. Uh yeah, I can really deal with people. That's something that I really want to do. It wasn't a straightforward beginning. Oh, at first I was just an intern. So I was just like, man, I, I want to take this serious because like, I've never taken the job serious. We finished our intern. I was super proud. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah, like another completion. Like, I complete everything I start. And uh, when a break came and when the whole week when they started, I didn't come for that whole week. <laughs> so I finally came in, like, hey, like, I'm ready to work. And uh, Teresa and Tammy and uh, Chef and, and Lisa was like, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do this. <laughs> like, you can't just skip a whole week just because you don't feel good. You got to at least show up. So I was just like, wow, like, I totally just, like, messed this up. And I was like, damn, I deserve to, like, not, you know, get the job. But they gave me a chance. You know, that was like, come in every Friday. Come in every Friday and speak in front of the um, the audience. So I did that, and it was like, okay, and you have to write down, you have to get to know all the employees. You have to write down, you know, what is it that I like about old school. So I did that. Like, they gave me so many chances. Like, I'm really, like, feel really blessed when I'm like when I come to here. Like, it's not even about the money. You can't buy relationships with people. Like Teresa, she like really took me in like a mother. <laughs> like she was like that mom that I never kinda had. I always feel like at peace here because this is like definitely like my home. I've been here for two years. I've never had a job for two years. This is going to be my third year in September, and I was just getting out of county jail when I was 19. 
Through old school, Jeremiah got his stability. He got the secure, nurturing relationships he needed. He enrolled in community college. He got himself on the honor roll. The night I had dinner at old school, he stood up in front of a packed restaurant to tell his story, and he said that his dream was to do a master's at Harvard. I asked him at the end of our interview, what would he tell his 14-year-old self, that little guy who was getting himself into all sorts of trouble? He said, I would tell him all the stuff that you want <laughs> is, is yours already. It's yours, but you have to get to it, and it's going to be hard to get to it, so don't give up. Like, no one said that it's going to be easy. That's what is, no, that's life. You have to be able to get back up, try again, and keep on going. I'd like to thank all the contributors to this series. Sherilyn Adams, Heather Docker, Hannah Dorr, Teresa Goines, Shaman Walton, Jeremiah. I'd also like to thank Alok Gupta and Dilesh Harya for technical assistance. A quick note. None of this should undermine the debate that's currently going on about improving teacher quality and resources at school, or about reforming our criminal justice system, or our foster care system. All of these aspects matter. I've included some references that speak to these topics on the website. What I hope I've done over the past couple of weeks is show you that we can learn a lot just by studying the behaviour of young people and adjusting our interventions, our actions, to meet them where they're at, to change them from within. Please do let me know what you thought of our topic via Twitter, at Telling Times Me, on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Telling Times Me, or through our website, tellingtimes.me. Thanks for tuning in.